Good evening and welcome. I'm Diane Meyerhoff, host for tonight's Candidate Forum for Chittenden County State Senate. Tonight's show is being aired live on Channel 17 and streamed live on the Channel 17 website. We welcome your comments and questions. Please join the conversation at 862-3966. The Chittenden County Senate delegation is made up of six seats. As such, we'll be taking candidates in groups throughout the evening, uh, three separate groups. Candidates joining me now are the two incumbents, Democrat progressive incumbents, uh, Tim Ash and Phil Baruth, Libertarian Seth Conoyer, Conoyer? Conoyer, yeah. Conoyer, sorry, and Republican Alex Farrell. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you. The Thank ground you. rules for tonight's forum is the candidates will make opening statements of up to two minutes each, then they will answer prepared questions and also questions that were emailed to us in advance for two minutes with a possible one minute rebuttal. We're going to start with opening statements and we're going to ask the candidates why they're running and the experience that they bring to the position. We're going to start with <clears throat> Tim Ash. Tim. Well, thank you, Diane. Um, so I've been very privileged to serve as a state senator since 2009. I was elected on the night that uh, President Barack Obama was elected. I didn't know how important that night would be until I've watched the last year and a half or so. Uh, in the Senate, I'm the president of the Vermont Senate, which means that the other 29 senators elected me to be their leader. Uh, I've been very proud. Just this last year, we were able to achieve something and working closely with Senator Baruth on this gun safety legislation, which had eluded previous legislatures and administrations for a very long time. That was very community-driven, which I think makes it um, uh, all the more promising in terms of the public safety that it offers. There are a whole variety of issues that I care deeply about and that I want to return to work on, including increasing the minimum wage, rebuilding our mental health and human services infrastructure, including, most importantly, the workforce, uh, fighting climate change, an area that we've made some strides here in Vermont, but we now know that we're emitting more than we were 25 years ago or so, so we have more work to do there. I'll leave it at that and say that my professional background, I worked for a number of years developing affordable senior housing for Cathedral Square. Before that, I worked for then-Congressman Bernie Sanders. Uh, I've done teaching in our state college system uh, and work with nonprofits on development projects. So it's been a great uh, privilege to serve the people of Chittenden County and hope I can continue to with their support in November. Great. Thank you, Tim. Phil, opening statement. So I am Senator Phil Baruth. This is my uh, fourth term ending now. I'm looking for a fifth. Um, Tim mentioned the 2008 Barack Obama election. I was actually a delegate that year to Denver, and it was one of the more amazing experiences of my life. Um, so I like to think in some microscopic way I contributed to the Obama era. Um, currently, I'm chair of education in the Senate, and I sit on the... Uh, Economic Development Committee. And in both areas, I think I do really necessary work for the state, growing the economy or doing my best to grow the economy and looking out for our children and their education and also the taxpayers that fund that system. So just a couple of things from each of those venues. Uh, in terms of economic development and general affairs, as the committee is known, we passed, uh, among other legislation, the $15 minimum wage and also paid family leave. We worked very hard on those. I think the bills were necessary. They would have helped us become a more attractive state for people to move to. Unfortunately, both were vetoed by the governor, but it is my intention, certainly, and I think Tim's as Senate president, 
um, that if we're returned by the voters, we will go back to those issues very quickly. Uh, and then the other thing in terms of education, Tim mentioned gun safety, and that was huge, uh, something that I worked very hard on for five years. But in addition to that, the legislature also passed uh, a $4 million grant program to upgrade security physically at schools. And then in addition to that, uh, my committee wrote a grant program to make restorative justice an attractive model for districts to adopt so that they can get grants to adopt that disciplinary model. Why is that important? Because another reason why people believe that mass shootings occur is that sometimes you have students who fall through the cracks or harbor grudges because of suspensions and disciplinary matters. I'm going to stop you there. And <laughs> thank I'm done. you, Phil. <laughs> thank you. Seth, opening statement. Yeah, uh, first I would like to thank Channel 17 and Diane for moderating this debate. It's definitely huge. Currently, our sitting senators consist of 21 Democrats, seven Republicans, and two progressives. Personally, that worries me. I think it should worry anyone, not because there's 21 Democrats. I'd be worried if there was uh, 21 Republicans in the Senate. Rather, the, um, the legislative branch is supposed to be having these important debates. And with one side dominating the debate, it's very hard for the legislative branch to do that job, if anything. I offer a different perspective, a perspective in the Senate. And you know, if elected, I would not only be the first libertarian sitting senator, but I'd also be the youngest sitting senator. And as you'll see, a lot of the issues facing Vermont and Vermonters today have to do with my younger generation, a lot of which are leaving Vermont. We need to figure out how to best keep Vermonters here and, want, and have Vermonters want to stay. So if anything, I offer a different perspective and a way of looking at that perspective. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. And last but not least, Alex, opening statement. All right, so I'm, I'm Alex Farrell, uh, also one of the younger challengers. I'm running as a Republican, and I graduated from the University of Vermont in 2015 uh, with a degree in finance, and since I've worked as a data analyst at a small mutual insurance company. I bring a perspective uh, of, of a demographic that is rapidly fleeing our state, and it's one that's not represented in the Senate right now. And uh, it, it scares me, not only as Seth pointed out, that we have a supermajority in the legislature, one that can really dictate the, uh, the, the flow of policy and the conversation that goes on, but it concerns me that this demographic is not represented because, uh, as I said, it's one that we're struggling to hold on to. Um, now, I've served my community in a number of ways. Right now, I'm on the steering committee of my neighborhood planning assembly out in the new north end of Burlington. Uh, I served for a while on Burlington's board for the registration of voters, where we, we registered uh, folks, some new Americans, some folks that had just fallen through the cracks and never got registered, uh, and some folks that were new in town. And that was extremely rewarding and encouraged me to get more involved. Uh, and so after that, the mayor and the city council appointed me to the Parks Commission, Parks, Rec, and Waterfront, where we've had to ensure that we keep parks accessible to folks of all income levels and, and make sure that the things that we love in Burlington are accessible to everybody. So again, I want to bring these perspectives to the state senate. Great. Thank you much. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Um, we're going to now go talk about our uh, prepared questions, and we also have some email questions that I'm going to sprinkle in, keep it a little interesting. So um, let's talk about the economy. According to Forbes magazine, Vermont's economic outlook is projected to be the second worst in the U.S. over the next five years, while income growth is expected to lag behind. Do you agree with this assessment? What is your plan of action to strengthen Vermont's economic outlook? And we're going to start with Phil. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I agree that we have work to do. I think Forbes typically undersells what's going on in Vermont. We've had very low unemployment through the Great Recession to now. Um, I think we have been lagging behind for as much as we have MyWebGrocer and Dealer.com, some, some very iconic internet businesses, we have lagged ever since the Douglas administration desperately on online and broadband. So I think the, the number one thing we can do to grow the economy is to finally make good on, Jim Douglas called uh, Vermont the E-State in his you know, ideal world, that we would lead the nation in terms of our uh, providing of broadband and in, in this day and age, uh, cellular access. And we didn't make it during the Douglas administration. Peter Shumlin came in and then we had a, a large amount of stimulus money that was uh, brought forward by the Obama administration in their first year. And the, uh, the Shumlin administration offered incentives to telecoms. But I think basically the, the failing idea has been that telecoms will do this build out to the last mile, and they won't. Um, they've made it very clear that they don't want to do it on their own. They've made it clear that even with incentives, they won't get it done. So Christine Hallquist, our Democratic candidate for governor, has what I think is a very out-of-the-box idea, and that's to use electric cooperatives to complete that, uh, that um, you know, our, our current generation's version of electrification. How do we get broadband out to the, the barns and the ends of the dirt roads where we want entrepreneurs to be able to, um, to work and, and productively operate. Okay, great, thank you. Um, Seth, you're next. We're talking about how to improve the economy. Yeah. So I believe also in that Forbes article, they had us ranked at number 47 for business cost and 48 for uh, best business or best state to work for businesses. And uh, that's not really coincidental at all. Uh, the economy is by far a complicated issue. Uh, much of it revolves around businesses and jobs. And you know, what seems good isn't always good. Currently our Vermont unemployment rate is 4%, which is one of the lowest. Although that seems good, it's really not. It means that it's really hard for businesses to find workers to work their jobs. Uh, actually, I'd, we're a bit below 4%. A normal unemployment rate is around 4%. And being below 4% with that hard, or having a hard time to find jobs, you create a price-wage spiral, which means that you then start to raise prices on products. And by raising prices on products, it increases the unaffordability of Vermont. Uh, one of the other issues is the cost of living in Vermont, which is extremely uh, inducive of our economic climate right now. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the permits we have on development. Uh, most of the money from development are most money of development funding goes towards permits, which then goes onto the cost of living. So that's one way we can really look at fixing Vermont's economic issue by helping out those who need affordable housing, because affordable housing is extremely hard to find in Vermont, especially in Chittenden County. Okay, thank you. Um, any thoughts? <clears throat> uh, oh, no, almost. <laughs> Sorry, economy. Uh, I absolutely agree with this assessment. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm one of five siblings, and uh, three of them have left this state because it was just it wasn't plausible for them to stay here. And so I've seen it firsthand. My siblings, my friends, and uh, opportunity, as Seth said, opportunity is not there. 
Uh, I talked to a business owner uh, a couple weeks back who said, I'm not afraid of competition because nobody's going to enter this market. The, the permitting process is too cumbersome. I know I'm protected. And so, in a way, our permitting process is actually protected uh, quasi-monopolistic uh, tendencies. And, and that's not something that we want to be encouraging when we know we already have an affordability issue. And so, uh, with, as Seth said, incredibly low unemployment rate, that indicates that employers are having a very difficult time finding talented workers. We, we just aren't doing anything to help ourselves. So if we can build into permit, uh, some permit reform building into Act 250, streamlining pro projects that'll uh, add job growth or will add a certain amount of housing to start, um, start chipping away at these issues, and it's not going to happen overnight. We've got projects going on such as Cambrian Rise on North Ave, and that's not going to have an immediate impact on the housing costs, but we have got to take another look at permit reform to streamline projects that are going to start to chip away at this issue. Tim, talking to you, how to improve the economy. Well, I would uh, go back to something Phil started with. I think in increasing the minimum wage will put more money in people's pockets, the kind of money that they will spend on uh, everyday uh, uses. Um, and for too long, the national economy, as a result of our place in the global economy, has allowed economic gains to be distributed in a most unfair way. Most of the money drifts to the people who have tremendous resources where middle class and working class people have had their wages and salaries be flat. So a minimum wage increase, in my opinion, is very important. I worry a little bit when I hear people say that permitting reform is going to uh, boost the economy in tremendous ways. As someone who has gone through the Act 250 process as a developer, I know something about it. Uh, and while we can certainly make improvements, the vast majority of projects around the state do not go to Act 250, so it is no silver bullet. And I've been hearing about permit reform for a long time, and uh, I think admittedly it's a complicated area. Um, should we streamline some projects? Absolutely, and we have done that. We have a number of uh, initiatives we've passed with the Douglas administration, with the Shumlin administration, around new neighborhoods legislation. We've increased expend, uh, uh, support for the downtown and village tax credit program. We've funded the Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies. We've increased resources for VITA's small business loans, tech loans, agricultural loans. We have put more money into workforce development in recent years than in the past, all of which are good things. So those are some of the uh, things we have to keep doing and do better, including the way we do our regulatory system for development. So I do agree there's room for improvement. Um, but another thing we have to do is we need to get more young people uh, equipped to enter the workforce. High school kids, many of whom, if their parents don't have resources or connections to jobs and internships, have no job skills. They don't know what it's like to work with others in a team setting. They don't know how to communicate to a customer. So one of the things I hope we'll do is build on programs like the Youth Conservation Corps and give every high school kid an opportunity who wants it for some type of internship or work uh, opportunity. So that's something that I'm determined to revisit when we go back to Montpelier. Okay, thank you. Um, let's switch gears and talk about health care. Um, how do we limit health care spending in Vermont while also remaining one of the healthiest states in the nation? Seth, we're going to start with you. Yeah, so healthcare is definitely a, a complex issue. Now, whether or not we're talking about health insurance or actual the healthcare system, it, they're two very different issues. With health insurance, uh, most businesses and most people have been seeing a rise in cost in health insurance. Part of this is due to the the high cost of health care, but also the high um, government forcing you to buy different types of health insurances. What I mean by this is the government in Vermont mandates 40 different types of health insurances, one of which uh, being herbal care. 
uh, you might not want this sort of insurance, but the insurance companies are forced to purchase this for you, which means you are forced to buy into this. This in turn raises the cost of your health insurance. Now with the healthcare market, it's a, it's a lack of competition. You know, when you go in and get an x-ray, you don't know how much that x-ray costs and whether or not there's a cheaper x-ray you can go out and get. This causes a lack of competition in the healthcare market. Because of a lack of competition, there is no set cost and therefore monopolies kind of form. Now in Vermont, it's even harder to form a Medicare or a medical service than at other states for the most part. Now this is more of a national issue while health insurance and health, or, sorry, health companies have a hard time forming. We need to make it easier and less, less complicated and with the red tape and the paperwork for you to enter the healthcare market to create a better competition. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Alex, healthcare spending. Yep. So there, there is some hope that the, the ACO model will in time uh, curb the cost and, and curb the expense to, to patients. Um, however, there's, there's also a concern about access to care uh, uh, under, that, under that ACO model and that, that care can um, be, be uh, wait times could be increased. Um, now, something that we, we could take more steps for, and I know there have been some, but something we could uh, go after more is price transparency. Price transparency can empower patients to, uh, to better understand what they're paying for, what's on, what's on their bill. A lot of folks, you get the bill and you don't know what's on there. And frankly, you, you don't know what you're gonna pay until after you get the service. So empowering patients to better understand what they're gonna be paying for uh, and, and uh, compare prices like we would do with any other good uh, are a couple good first steps um, that I think we need to continue to pursue. Thank you. <clears throat> Tim. Well, the, pri the primary thing we have to do is rein in hospital spending. Uh, we have a $6 billion or so total amount of spending on healthcare services in Vermont, about two and a half billion of which goes to hospitals. Right up the hill here in Burlington, it's about a $1.3 billion operation, which almost matches the size of the state's entire general fund, so it puts it in some scale. Uh, the growth of the UVM Medical Center budget, just to pick the largest, on an annual basis, if it's two or three or four percent, that can be almost $30 million a year of growth. And that money is coming out of the pockets of businesses and individuals and state and federal government. So we all have a stake in reining in hospital spending. And I think what that would allow us to do is use those dollars upstream on preventive and community-based services so that we can treat people in an appropriate way before they wind up in the hospital. That over time will break the cost curve, we hope. Uh, price transparency, I absolutely agree, is something that we need more of. One of the challenges right now is that the information is available, but it's like you have to go through a labyrinth to find it. The other thing is, is that the insurance companies themselves should care where you go to get your procedure. And sitting here in Burlington right now, we have access to two or three hospitals within a 45-minute drive or so. And Blue Cross Blue Shield should care if we have three equal care options, if one is, say, half the price of going to one of the other facilities, and our insurers have shown little to no interest in exploiting those kinds of uh, savings. The other is we have a small uh, but important independent doctor workforce. Um, the powers that be have tried to squeeze them out over time by holding their reimbursements flat, have opposed the creation of a new surgical center. Uh, my belief is we need those independent doctors not only for the choice they provide, but they hold the rest of the cinema, system accountable. And some of the monopoly concerns that have been raised, I absolutely agree with. Independent doctors are a good, 
testing uh, case to see if they can deliver the services at a cheaper price than the larger entities. And so we have to make sure that they don't go extinct. They're dangerously close. Mm -hmm. Phil, healthcare spending. Yeah, I would uh, second what Tim and Alex said about price transparency. Um, but I, I would just insert a note of caution about the free market. And what I mean is this. I think if you listen at the national level, you'll hear the Republican Party acting as though competition itself will bring prices down. Clearly it hasn't over the years. But if you think about just a, a common example, you know, you want to buy a plane ticket to go somewhere. You can go to a website that will give you the different prices on different airlines and you can use that to make your decision. But if you had to take that airplane or die, you would lose a lot of your, uh, your power as a consumer. And that's at, at the root of it. That's why we spend so much money on healthcare. People don't really have a choice. When they go to a doctor and they're told, you will die unless you do this, they simply nod their head to every single thing that the doctor says because in effect, they're disempowered as consumers. To me, that suggests that healthcare itself is a field that needs to be heavily regulated. Um, you know, again, national Republicans will raise a cry about one-sixth of the U.S. economy being turned into a government-run entity. I look at Medicare. Uh, my mother just passed recently. She was on Medicare and she had TRICARE because my stepfather was a veteran. And both of those entities took remarkable care of her from the time she was diagnosed until the time she died. And it seems to me that a Medicare for all solution is the, the path we should be moving toward. And I believe the national conversation is going <coughs> that way. And Vermont is very much in sync with that. Um, so I, I think in addition to the steps that have been mentioned, uh, we need to be moving systemically towards something like that. Okay, <clears throat> and we have a question from the audience, which plays on this question. So that I <coughs> time to rebuttal at all, or you know, we can do it because right. this question I think will perhaps address some of the issues Sounds that good. we talked about. Let's try it. Uh, so uh, the Trump administration, as part of its efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, is now allowing small employers to lead the small group marketplace through associations. And if you remember, we had this, the system was similar in the past, at least that's been my experience. Um, there's a broad agreement that this will lead to higher costs for those who are left in the individual small group insurance pool. Some believe this will put the stability of our health insurance marketplace at risk. Do you share these concerns? Will you work to prevent this from taking place? And we are going to start with Alex. <clears throat> uh, well, given, given the, the recent changes to uh, at the federal level. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a lot that we could do at the state level to, to impact this. Now, the concern of this dismantling the, uh, the insurance market, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that would be the case. Uh, I know to some extent small businesses may, uh, may advocate for this, and I think further studies required to see if this really would bring costs down, but uh, I think the, the focus should be more at cost containment at this point uh, and, and empowering patients. Okay, uh, Tim. Well, um <clears throat> the Blue Cross Blue Shield and I do not agree on everything, but on this one we do, that it will increase uh, premiums for those who remain in the exchange, which would be a very serious problem, especially for all the individuals in the exchange. I happen to be one of them, so maybe I have a little self-interest. But um, the federal government's attempts to dismantle it you know, by these little nibbles around the edges um, have left us in this awkward um, situation trying to determine what the state of Vermont can do relative to the federal government. 
So I would be concerned with dismantling this system. And I should also say one of the, because the rollout of Vermont Health Connect, the website was so clumsy and so frustrating to so many people, one of the things that was lost was the ability of income eligible individuals in the exchange to avail themselves of federal tax credits, which greatly reduce the cost of health care for people. If plans leave the exchange, that resource is threatened or taken away altogether. So uh, it may be that many businesses will actually stay in the exchange for that reason, because it might be better for their uh, employees who, with their coverage. But at the moment, if I find out that it's going to raise the premiums for everyone who remains in the exchange, I would be I would do what I can to stop that from happening. Okay, thank you. If anything is available to the state, we're talking about the um, the Affordable Care Act exchange versus association policies. In a sense, Phil. Yeah, I I do also agree that if you allow this. Um, exodus out of that small market, you will increase premiums for those who remain in it. I think in general, the Trump administration's approach, because they couldn't get the votes to uh, dismantle the act, they've been trying to make small changes that when taken together will make it appear as though the Affordable Care Act is collapsing, when in fact all of the things that were very carefully put into it to make it succeed are being pulled out one by one so that, of course, in that event, you'll have bad policy. Um, I, I guess the other thing I would say is that if you think of it as an issue of individual freedom, that no individual should be made to buy a product, and there was, in fact, a, a famous suit to the Supreme Court that was decided uh, by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, where he upheld the Affordable Care Act, that it was in society's interest to regulate and group together to bring down these costs to keep everyone in the country healthier. Now, if you're someone, uh, you know, my libertarian friend here, I'm sure we'll take exception to that. Um, you know, bring it down to a very tiny level. I have a friend in the Senate, Joe Benning, who's a Republican. He hates motorcycle helmets and he wants to pass a law to get rid of the requirement that they be worn. But the logic is, in that event, you'll have a lot of people with severe head injuries the whole system will have to pick up that cost. So individual freedom and the needs of the whole are in tension. In this case, I think it's, it's just a better argument that uh, regulating the insurance market, requiring uh, those, those businesses to stay in will keep prices lower and everyone will be healthier uh, into the bargain. Okay, and we're talking about the um, ACA exchange versus association policies, Seth. Yeah. Phil certainly beat me to the, the discussion <laughs> of the debate. Um, it is a question of individual liberties and whether or not you have the right to choose what you buy, uh, including the individual mandate, and whether or not you, you should be forced into buying a certain policy, a healthcare policy. Premiums will most likely raise. There's, there's not much of a debate towards that. Now, will it, un, or will it uproot the healthcare insurance market? Probably not. Now, it's important to note, people are not going to Canada for the most part for health insurance or for health care. Most people from Canada are actually coming to America for major health care issues. Part of that is due to the fact that U.S. and, and, and the, free, the free market and how we run most of our health care insurance, and it can certainly be better in our, our health care, is that by having a free market, money although it can be seen as evil, helps people get what they need to live. You know, most people in the UK have wicked long wait times 
and don't get the policies they need. It's a scary thought to have the government be able to tell you whether or not you can get that cancer-inducing treatment that you need or not. You know, the free market is best able to work with these issues. So that's why I believe the, the best way to fix this issue is to kind of deregulate the market. You know, the U.S. is one of the leading um, countries in healthcare research. Most other countries with uh, socialized healthcare have a much lower healthcare research because there's not that in incentive to do that research. So that's why I would push us towards a free market system. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Do you, want, do you all want another minute, or did we were we able to cover your rebuttals in that? Okay, good. Um, let's uh, let's turn now to uh, marijuana, something a little lighter. Uh, now that marijuana is legal, this is a question that we we got uh, via email. Now that marijuana is legal, um, do you support taxing and regulating it? And Tim, you're first. Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, the Senate has uh, passed a full uh, seed to sale regulatory system. Mm -hmm. um, should we revisit it uh, in light of what we've continued to learn from other states, including most recently Massachusetts and what we are now seeing come online in Canada? Yes, but uh, I do support it and uh, I am uh, concerned that right now we have a system that allows people to use legally um, but not to purchase it safely. Uh, and I believe that marijuana and alcohol should be handled in an equivalent manner. And I think we're missing the boat, not because I'm a huge enthusiast. I, don't, I do not want kids trying it uh, at young ages. I want there to be good public health and public education to tell people what the risks are. I don't want people driving while they're uh, under the influence of marijuana. On the other hand, I know that tens of thousands of Vermonters are using marijuana responsibly in their homes, not causing problems for anyone else. And from my point of view right now, the one thing we're not receiving is the tax revenue which we could use to support all those public health measures. So I absolutely support moving forward and uh, if returned to the Senate, we'll, uh, we'll vote in favor of that. Okay, Phil, marijuana. Yeah, I'm, my position is similar to Tim's. Um, I've, I've been an advocate for a long time of decriminalization and then legalization. Uh, I think you always need to do that in light of public safety and especially how we prevent young people from acquiring it when they're not legally allowed to do so. So Vermont, going back to prohibition, has been what we call a, a heavy control state with regard to alcohol. So we have a, uh, an alcohol beverage commission that has oversight and a great deal of regulatory authority. We issue licenses and it's somewhat difficult to get a license uh, and, and we try to distribute them geographically, but also the state has control of all the alcohol until you buy it, the state controls it. And that's no accident. So there are other states that are loose control on alcohol we've chosen over the years to be heavy. I think we should do exactly the same thing with marijuana. Tim mentioned seed to sale, that's secure seed to sale. So knowing exactly, literally to the seed, where the marijuana is, keeping it behind fencing, making sure that people have proper idea, all of those things. Right now you're allowed to grow a couple of plants legally. Um, I think one of the things that we might want to look at is making sure that those plants are themselves secure. My, my memory of the legislation is that it's silent on some aspects that I think could use some tightening up. Um, and there is no roadside test for THC. That continues to be an issue that I think we have to grapple with. But on balance, I think it's revenue that the state needs 
and it's also additional control in terms of regulation. Okay. Seth, marijuana, uh, yeah. taxing and regulating. Yeah, I would be in favor of opening up the uh, to a legal market or tax regulated market. In part because when the law was passed to legalize marijuana, it initially, although legalized marijuana, it created a black market because there was no way to legally purchase it. You could grow it, but most people would want to purchase more. So without creating that legal market, you then created a black market, and with the black market became risks of whether or not certain marijuanas or certain drugs were safe, whether or not it was because you might be purchasing a laced marijuana um, plant or, or other, other drugs uh, that introduced you into the market, it became more risky. By, by, opening, by legalizing a market for marijuana, not only will we receive the tax money, uh, but we could also regulate what drugs, or rather, sorry, regulate the safety of marijuana in the market and whether or what people would be purchasing. Okay, Alex, uh, taxing and regulating marijuana. I think there are a lot of benefits to a tax and regulate model, and, and the recent legislation certainly improved the odds that what you're getting is a safe product. Um, now, uh, I think Senator Baruth already voiced what would be my concerns, which are that we do not have uh, a, a roadside test right now for THC, and uh, unfortunately until that is nailed down, I'm not sure I could support a tax and regulate model. Now, that being said, I have no ideological opposition to it because of the benefits but uh, an education campaign and doing more to ensure that we have a roadside test are absolutely necessary before we were to go forward with a tax and regulate model. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have another question from the audience, um, and it is, uh, what is your opinion on the explain the asterisk legislation campaign? Do you think college students that are dismissed for sexual misconduct should be able to transfer to schools with no notation on their transcript as to why they were dismissed? Okay, kind of a specific, very specific question. Uh, Phil, you start us off. So this is uh, a, a campaign that's been uh, pushed and I think successfully pushed by a UVM student, a young woman, and uh, I think she absolutely has right on her side. So the way it stands now, if you're a young woman and you've experienced some, some form of assault on campus, the odds are very high that that system is going to um, not serve you well. And, and I, I draw on experience, uh, not simply in Vermont, but nationally speaking. Um, so I think young women have a hard time when they come forward. They have a hard time in terms of making their case at the university level. But then if they are successful and you know the student is found to have uh, committed some, some form of assault, that student in many cases can go on to another university with absolutely nothing trailing them and perhaps commit the assault elsewhere. It's the sort of thing we would never allow with teachers. Um, you know, we would, we would never allow there not to be a record that followed that person around the school system, but in the higher education system, uh, particularly young men, because they're statistically the ones who commit this sort of crime the most, they can move freely and uh, that has to be fixed. Okay, Seth. Uh, yeah, I would say it should be taken to a court proceeding. I, I, I disdain how college campuses deal with a lot of these sexual assault issues. And for it to be able to be taken to the courts, I think we really need to discuss what we define as sexual assault. Um, 
because sexual assault is a very complicated issue. I, I find it disgusting that it happens, especially how often it happens on college campuses. Now, what do we legally define as sexual assault versus, I would say, creepy behavior? That's something we have to discuss. I think it's best discussed in the legal court system rather than the, the jungle court system of college campuses. Now, once it's legally founded in a legal court, then that should follow your record everywhere. So that's what I would say. Okay. Um, Alex. <clears throat> Well, I think, especially right now, it's incredibly important that we do everything we can to protect and believe survivors, and more importantly, protect uh, our entire student body from, uh, from the potential of that occurring. And if you've got students transferring from one university to another, uh, I think it is important that uh, folks in student services are able to communicate, I think maybe not via transcript, but via the Common App, which is where it would probably end up, is on the Common App, uh, the reason for the dismissal, and I think that's an absolutely necessary part of protecting the student body. Okay. Mom, we're talking about Explain the Asterisk campaign. Tim. I, I support the movement, and uh, I think what would be critical is that all the higher education institutions have to work together so that when one school has an asterisk and explains why, it has a common meaning across all colleges. Uh, I think that's an important part of kind of the intercollegiate uh, system of justice. It is different than the um, than the state-run court system. And so I think that's part of the, the effort that needs to be uh, furthered. And it's not just on individual student activists to make that happen. That's the leadership at colleges and universities all over the country who have to make it a meaningful term so that when they see that, they know what it means and have their red flag up. Okay, thank you. Um, we have another question from the audience. People have been calling in for you guys, so you're doing, <laughs> doing something right here. Um, and we should actually say 862-3966. We, of course, would love to hear from you. Um, so uh, this is the handle at BigRigVT asks, how did the recent gun laws passed by the legislature do anything for school safety? Um, and Seth, we're starting with you. Perfect. You know, I would say this, uh, this <laughs> would affect my, my uh, school more uh, specifically in other schools, I don't think it really did a lot in Vermont, I'll be very honest. You know, when it comes towards school shootings and school issues, or and gun violent issues, it's very close to my heart. Uh, I was at the Fort Lauderdale shooting with UVM, uh, the UVM swim team at the time, and although it was a firearm being used at the time by the, the crazed, I would say, um, man who shot up the Fort Lauderdale airport, I, I never really quite blamed the firearm. You know, he was able to get the firearm because uh, the background check system kind of failed because background check systems aren't all effective in, in some ways. Uh, that needs to be looked at on whether, uh, how we fix that. You know, it's, it's an issue of whether or not teen, uh, specifically school shootings, Recently, teenage depression and uh, teenage suicide has, has risen. And I, I would be pretty sure that school shootings have also risen because of the same cause. It's, I would say it's a mental health issue that we really have to look at and how we help out these teenagers and see what's affecting this rise in depression in teenagers to really get down to the roots of the issues. You know, the guns have always been here in the United States. The AR-15 has been here since 1950. So what has caused an increase in these recent violent shootings? That's what I would say we'd have to take a look at. Okay, we're talking about um, gun regulation and school safety. Alex. Uh, 
Well, I, I, and I'm not sure you can ever say the number of uh, violent acts prevented by a law, um, but you know that's not to say that common sense measures shouldn't be implemented. Uh, now, there there are methods of going about this without diminishing folks' rights, uh, and and I think some of those were in the legislation that recently passed. Now, there's I think a lot more that we can do in terms of working with folks, Seth's age, and uh, and continuing to work with programs like the Howard Center that are right here in the community that uh, will be able to do more outreach and uh, take a preventative approach. Now, um, again, I think it's it's all about common sense tactics that don't uh, that don't diminish uh, the rights of hunters and sportsmen. Uh, but but again, I think for the most part, the legislation that recently passed achieved that. Okay, Tim. Well, yeah, it is impossible to know what's been avoided by laws that you pass of a general nature, but. Uh, I can tell you why we uh, passed some of them, or at least why some of us uh, supported them, uh, increasing the purchase age to 21 unless you've been through an approved training program means that people are less likely to buy firearms on an impulse. Right now you could just walk into a Dick's or a Walmart and walk out with a gun if you were 17 in some cases, 19 depending on the firearm you were purchasing. Uh, and what we heard from public health officials and pediatric doctors was that it's those impulse purchases that are often the ones that are most likely to result in a violent act. We passed an extreme risk protection order bill. What that means is if someone is threatening others, threatening harm to him or herself, that a loved one or a community member can go through a process that respects due process to have firearms temporarily removed while Perhaps that person cools down or gets through that acute episode they're going through. In the state of Connecticut, that uh, helped reduce, uh, well, it was in, used to intervene in potential suicide cases more than anything else. And about 85%, I might be slightly off on the percentage, I think it's actually greater than that, of the firearm-related deaths in Vermont are actually firearm suicides. So that's gonna be really critical there. And universal background checks is another instance where it merely extends to purchases online or uh, at a gun show in the parking lot, the same requirements to go through the background check that purchases at a licensed firearm dealer have to go through. It's, I've never heard a good justification of why. If I went to buy an AR-15 at Walmart, I have to go through the background check, but if I check on Craigslist and meet someone in a parking lot, I don't. So. Whether that will prevent a school shooting is, is we'll, we'll never know if there's a direct link, but it, it could only help promote public safety. Phil uh, mentioned the investment in our uh, physical grants for schools to do things like uh, more secure exits and entrances uh, and things like that. And then lastly, I'd say we've, we've put some major resources the last two years into our mental health workforce. It has been starved over the years. Uh, the turnover rate at places like Howard Center is very high because of the low pay. And so in order to have the proper therapeutic environment, you need staff who are compensated fairly. They don't get rich doing this work and they never will. But if they're constantly turning over because they can't make a living at those jobs, that, that is a deterioration of the therapeutic uh, resources that they're supposed to provide. So we have to continue to maintain and strengthen our human services infrastructure. Okay, thank you. Phil, we're talking about gun regulation and school safety. Mm -hmm. Right, so Seth mentioned the need to strengthen background checks, and I think that's exactly right. That's why um, we passed universal background checks, because as Tim mentioned, we have had in place for decades background checks for new weapons. What we didn't have was background checks for used weapons. 
And by used, I mean it could be five minutes old. So literally, I could go into a gun store, get a background check, buy an AR-15, go to the parking lot, and on my laptop, sell it legally to someone else without a background check. To my mind, that was always insane. It was very similar to saying on the highway in the left lane, we're going to have new cars that have to go 55 miles an hour. And in the right lane, you can have a used car that goes as fast as you want. Just doesn't make any sense. If you're going to have background checks, it should apply to all weapons and all people. And that's more what we have now. And I'm, I'm very proud that the legislature did that. In terms of knowing how many of these incidents we might have prevented, one thing that we do know is that um, background checks prevent a certain number of prohibited sales every year. And the FBI gives us those statistics. In 2015, the legislature passed two modifications to the background check system. And Vermont Digger reported we had seen an additional 160 plus denials under those changes. So just take the 2015 law, which was nothing compared to what we just passed. That was 160 people who were not supposed to buy a weapon, either because they were domestic abusers or they had some other reason why they were denied that right. Uh, so preventing an actual number of people from a acquiring a weapon who shouldn't have it, whether or not we know for sure that they would have shot up a school or a mall or a nightclub or a church, we do know that they weren't supposed to have a weapon and that there was a good reason why. So I think that's justification enough uh, for that law. And then we, we hope that, in addition, it will prevent in the future mass shootings. Okay, thank you. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, we have time for a couple more questions, or maybe only one. Um, let's talk about the environment and water quality. How do we increase funding to clean up Vermont's lakes and rivers? And Alex, you're going to start us off. Absolutely. Uh, so this is an issue that is, is vital, and there has been uh, more research into exactly how we're going to clean up the lake, uh, and, and it's something we know we have to do because if for no other reason, this is an economic asset for us. This brings people to our state where they come and spend the money. Uh, so to lose Lake Champlain as one of our assets that we can sell is, is an absolute mistake. So it is worth investing the money. Um, now, the, the question will be, where does that money com come from? And one of, the, uh, one of the proposals this year was to start taxing the, um, the, the hotel industry, either $2 or at one point it was proposed $5 a night, which uh, to me is extremely misguided because this is uh, pinning the issue on one industry that I don't think it's fair to say is responsible for the problem. Now, uh, spreading that amongst the entire state with something like a parcel fee, that's a reasonable approach. But uh, <coughs> I, I simply can't understand why the Senate, um, well, actually, this came out of the House, but why um, the majority in the House was willing to support targeting an industry that had nothing to do with the problem. Uh, but that being said, I'd like to go back to the fact that it is crucial that we clean up the lake. Okay. Uh, we're talking about water quality funding. Uh, Tim. Well, one of the concerns some of us had back when the so-called water quality bill was passed three years ago was that it had all sorts of um, directive about how different types of properties would have to behave in terms of uh, managing their, their runoff and uh, contributions to water quality. 
but it never identified the way to pay for all the work that would be needed. And system-wide across the state, it's not just Lake Champlain, it's many other bodies of water. It's a huge undertaking that will take decades, really, to get on the other side of. And what the problem is now is that uh, there's no shortage of ideas about how to pay for it. Um, at its core right now, we have a governor who opposes any new revenues to pay for anything, not just this. Um, and that means that you would have to cannibalize from within. The problem is there aren't many easy uh, places to cannibalize right now. Um, and our capital budget, which is how we often pay for some of the water quality infrastructure and have for many years, that's a resource that has declined pretty precipitously over the last four or five years. And the committee that sets that amount that we can borrow each year for capital expenses says that it's going to go down another 7 or 8% next year. So it's an already oversubscribed source of funds that now is going to be even smaller despite the needs growing um, with every day. So in terms of paying for it, my own preference would be something that is very broadly based, that, um, that people will feel like everyone's making a small contribution uh, towards what is a collective problem. Um, but I'll just tell you the politics of this particular issue have been horrendous because no matter which source of funds uh, one suggests to help uh, clean up the water, the governor and his allies attack it. Um, they, they attack everything without proposing a solution. And I know that now one of the things that's being floated is some complicated uh, bond structure. Of course, we'll be all ears. If it's a good idea and it has merit, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hear it out and maybe it will be the right thing. Um, but sometimes tried and true uh, means of funding things are probably the more appropriate way. But we'll be all ears for the governor to signal if he's willing to pay for the, to clean up this problem or not. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're talking about, talking about water quality funding. Mm -hmm. Phil. Uh, I second what Tim said about uh, the governor's approach to this. I would add that they came out with what I thought was one of the most disingenuous uh, bits of misdirection I've ever seen, which was to say, let's not talk about how to fund cleanup of the lake. Let's talk about how we can make money cleaning up the lake. And so the administration came out with grants to uh, subsidize work on extracting fox phosphorus from the lake and our streams and other waterways and then selling that elsewhere in the country. Now, if you could do that right now, it would be a magical solution. So we'd have all the money we need because we'd sell the phosphorus as we took it out of the lake and it would be a self-perpetuating machine. But anybody who has any expertise in this issue will tell you that's a fantasy. And it was a fantasy that was put out deliberately to delay the amount of time that we would have to uh, raise the revenue to clean up the lake because it, it would take at least 10 years to get to the point where you might have some workable pilot program that would do that. So let me go back to, Tim mentioned 2015. Bobby Starr, uh, one of my favorite senators from the Northeast Kingdom, chairs, uh, chairs agriculture, and he came up with uh, a very smart proposal that would have taxed people when they buy phosphorus or other fertilizers. So you'd be raising revenue from the people who are using the phosphorus and that would disincentivize them from using it. So connecting the money that we're raising to the actual use of the nutrient. And that was a, a brilliant idea. Bobby brought all the stakeholders along, had them all ready to go along with it, and the Shumlin administration at the last moment pulled a switcheroo and put in the property transfer tax instead of that connection to the polluter. So that's the place where I think we should go back immediately establish that connection between the polluter and uh, the pollution and the cost thereby. 
Okay, thank you. Seth, water quality funding. Yeah, I would echo a lot of the words Alex said uh, beforehand about targeting a specific industry. It seems that both the other senators or sitting senators seem to not want to target the industry. Now, I would say that enforcing a new tax would not be beneficial to Vermont's economy, which was something we talked about earlier. I would agree with Phil Scott on the issue that it might be worth looking into self-cannibalization of certain other areas where we have spending. Vermont spends a lot of money in different areas, whether or not it be roads or welfare, both of which haven't been extremely effective for Vermont as a whole. You know, looking at Vermont's uh, road industry, we spend uh, a lot of money on roads, yet New Hampshire spends half as less as us and yet have much better roads than us. And you know, that's something we kind of have to look into. And if we can look into fixing that area in our tax spending, we can certainly look at putting that money towards cleaning out our lakes. You know, looking at our welfare, where I brought up earlier, we have 74,000 about uh, citizens who are below the poverty line. We spend 1.7 billion on welfare. That's effectively $22,906 per person under the poverty line. If the money was going to directly to the citizens who are below the poverty line, none of them would be considered nationally under the poverty line. So clearly the money there isn't being spent as effectively or going directly to the people who are below the poverty line. So if, once again, if we can look at these systems and self-evaluate and see where we can cut spending and move spending around, perhaps we can help out our government and clean out the lakes. <clears throat> I'd like and to respond to what I think actually, is Actually, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not do that because we're almost out of time, believe okay. it or not. What I'd like to do um, is give you each a minute to do either a, a closing mm -hmm. statement or a rebuttal, whatever you'd like to do, okay? Um, I apologize. It went faster <laughs> than I thought. Um, so we're going to start um, actually, uh, uh, Tim, you actually are our starting person. All right. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and I have appreciated the uh, opportunity to engage on the issues here. I will say the state of Vermont is not spending $1.7 billion on welfare if you came up with the most expansive definition to include Medicaid, which is in some people's eyes perhaps welfare, but it's not welfare. Um, maybe you start adding up to those types of numbers. But I, some people think that there are uh, uh, many, many people, like tens and tens of thousands of people on the state receiving very generous cash payments each month, which is what welfare more conventionally is, and that is not true. Um, I have greatly enjoyed uh, being the leader of the Vermont Senate. Uh, one of the things that I take most pride in is that Despite the perception uh, pitched by the governor's team, his political team, the budgets passed by the Senate last year were unanimous in every instance. Uh, the tax bill enjoyed a majority support of the Republicans in the Senate. So despite the fact that it's, uh, the partisan breakout is about two to one, we had worked very well together, uh, which I think means that we came with very balanced solutions to the state's needs. I would be very proud to return to the Senate and represent the people of Chittenden County, which has been the great honor of my adult life. Um, I work very hard to be in communication with my constituents uh, throughout the summer and fall and not just when we're in the session. Uh, and I hope to continue to be uh, engaged with you solving all of our problems. The Vermont's a great state to live in. One of the most important things we can do is stop letting some people for political purposes trash it at every step of the way. I have a much more positive vision and most of the people I serve with in the Senate have a positive view about Vermont and want to build on it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Phil. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very excited that we talked some tonight about gun safety. Um, that's something I've been talking about for a number of years. And I will say that of, of the moments that I think back on in the Senate as my proudest, there are two that I, that I would just point out. 
One was standing beside uh, Governor Phil Scott and his wife when he signed those gun bills this past year on the steps of the State House. That was an amazing moment. Even though there were uh, people there who were calling for his hide and people there who were yelling their support, we were divided to a certain extent. About two-thirds of the state uh, indicates strong support for those laws now, and I think that's a fabulous thing for our state. Um, the other thing is, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Vermont Medical Society named me uh, one of their winners of their 2018 Founders Award. And that's an award that they give every year to someone who has moved the needle on safety for the lives of Vermonters and the lives of Americans generally. And um, they noted my work with gun safety. They noted that I had pushed through uh, five years of obstacles. I'm not the only one who received the award. The governor did as well. And the two of us uh, will receive it together. And I think that's additional proof of what Tim was talking about, that when push comes to shove in the Vermont State House, we often work together in the best way. Great, thank you. Seth? Yeah, I'm extremely happy that we talked about some of the issues uh, regarding affordability of Vermont, uh, especially in the housing, mar housing market and affordable housing. I wish we could have gotten into more detail about what's causing that, such as uh, zoning laws, along with the permitting costs, which we talked about briefly. Uh, and we talked a bit about economic issues tonight, a lot of which is very important to Vermont, because without a growing economy, we won't grow our population. And the more we can grow our economy and help businesses form in Vermont, I think the better of a, uh, the stronger of a population we'll have, and the more we can help grow Vermont. Because Vermont's a beautiful state, and as much we want to keep it that way as much as possible. But we also have to grow. And if we don't grow as a state, we won't grow and compete in the, the growing country that we are today. And you know, um, as one of the younger uh, candidates for the senator position, I would love to talk about a lot of the issues regarding education. Uh, one thing that I didn't, we weren't able to talk about today was education. I'm very pro a school choice system so that you aren't forced to go to a school that you live in the area of, rather that you get to decide which education is best fit for you so that you can learn those skills and instead of being forced to go to a local school. And, you know, I would push for that as a state senator. I'm gonna push through that uh, through my campaign as well. Um, with that, I would say uh, I hope to get elected so I can continue to have these discussions. Uh, I will continue to have these discussions either way, but as an elected official, I would have more of an influence on the Senate. Great. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. <clears throat> um, Alex, final statements. Yep. Well, I've been in Vermont my entire life. I stayed here for, for college at the University of Vermont, and I stuck around when I graduated there uh, and, and will continue to live here for the rest of my life. Uh, my family's been here for many generations, and uh, rightfully so. It's a great place, and I love it here, and I'm, I'm a big cheerleader for the state of Vermont. Um, we know what our issues are. Um, people my age are fleeing, and it's because it's, it's because it's very hard to leave. Seniors are fleeing, it's because they're on a fixed income, and their property taxes are rising. Um, and, and given that we had a massive surplus this year, I, I cannot imagine a situation in which the majority party would not raise taxes. I feel compelled to ask that majority party if there is such a situation. And so what I want to bring is some balance. We have uh, uh, a delegation from Chittenden County that's made up of six folks that all represent one ideology. I would br bring a, a moderating and a different perspective. I'm somebody that that watches their friends leave, and, and I know what I want to see in my state to stick around, and, and I plan to, but I need to bring that perspective to the state Senate. Great. 
Thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining me tonight. Um, stay tuned for more state uh, Senate candidates from Chittenden <laughs> County, because we have two more groups of people coming in. Um, and of course, don't forget to vote either now, early, at uh, Towner City Hall, or on Election Day, Tuesday, November 6th. And please stay tuned to Channel 17 for ongoing uh, election night coverage. Thank you so much.